0: We begin this week with a quote from John Eldritch. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it he must desire life like water yet drink death like wine the story we just heard has been told a million times it's been told to the point that we call upsets in sports david versus goliath stories david was a young man he was care- he spent his youth caring for his family's sheep He fought off predators, lions, and bears, and he went to go take his brothers their food because dad told him he needed to, and he got himself caught up in a war. In standing up for what he knew was right, standing on the side of God, David ended up walking directly and intentionally into a battle. It was a battle bigger than him. It was a battle bigger than Goliath, and frankly, it was bigger than the nations that were at war. So I pose this question, these questions, this series of questions. What adventure are you on in this life? What battles are you marching intentionally into? What mark is on your life as a follower of Christ and as a child of God? Rich Mullins said, A faith that moves mountains is a faith that expands horizons. It does not bring us into a smaller world full of easy answers, but into a larger one where there is room for wonder. When I was 17, about three weeks after my dad had passed away, my mom went to Alaska to go spend time with her sisters. And my uh, brothers, my two younger brothers, went to stay with my grandparents, so I had the house to myself, which was fun. And we, one of my friends, Josh and I, we took a week, and we went to Enchanted Rock. And Enchanted Rock is this part in Texas, uh, out in the hill country. It's these two giant domes peering out of the earth. And you can climb up and over the domes, and you can go underneath into these caves. But you have to bring rope with you, because if, if, if you don't follow the rope back out, you get caught, get lost. It's really easy to get lost in these caves, these underground caves. And we saw these giant pillars, away from the domes, away from the caves. There's these huge pillars, several hundred feet in the air. That's how it felt like, at least. And so me and Josh were like, "Let's go climb them." So we get over there and we start climbing. We're climbing up these these pillars, these flat faces of rock. We're having a blast. We're enjoying it thoroughly we're probably 50 maybe 75 feet in the air we start looking around and enjoy the scenery and looking at the rock itself and we notice these hooks in the rock these hoops this was a ropes course it was very dangerous for us not to be using ropes on this course it was intentionally built so that you had to have ropes because if you fell you were dead we didn't know any difference We're just climbing rocks, man. We're just having fun. We're totally unaware of the danger of climbing this specific rock face. I told this story to uh, one of my mentors and his wife. His name was Pete. And I told Denise, his wife, this story. And they had two sons. One was about 13. One was about 15 or 16. And I told them this story. And she said, man, you better not tell my boys that story. You'll be in a lot of trouble if you do. And Pete looked at both of us and said, don't worry, he doesn't have to. He knew that in, left to their own devices, they're going to go climb in rock faces that are supposed to be for ropes courses also. He knew they were going to find their way running headstrong into danger, so to speak. From a young age, we tell these stories of knights with shining armor fighting dragons to save the princess. We read the Chronicles of Narnia, or Lord of the Rings to our children. We put these great images of adventure into their consciousness. Both of my boys, before they were even told these stories, they would pick up sticks or straws or anything that, that, that was long, and they would start swinging it around like they were defeating some imaginary foe. And a lot of this continues into our teens, like it did for me. And for some of us, it might even go into early adulthood. But at some point, we have more awareness of the dangers, so we become more risk-averse. Our world becomes smaller. We start getting more answers. And as Christians, we can be the worst at this. Before many of us knew God, we lived recklessly. We lived carelessly. We sought out adventure. We ran headfirst into danger. Every day was a new chance to seek out the world and all that it had to offer. But not anymore. Not as a Christian. Now we seek a life that's safe and secure. It's away from the world and all of its vices, all of its poisons. And we know something's missing. We feel it in our bones. We feel it in our spirit. We reach a point in all of our lives where we ask, is this all there is? Wasn't I made to do more? The answer is confidently Yes, absolutely. But to do that, to live for more, we have to remember how we got here, how we became children of God. Rich Mullins also said this. He said, never forget what Jesus did for you. Never take lightly what it cost him and never assume that if it cost him his very life, it won't also cost you yours. Think about that quote for a second. The cost of our salvation was the life of Christ, the Son of God. I talked a little bit last week about the fact that something is only worth what someone is willing to spend on it. God was willing to pay for us with the life of his son. We have great value to him. That is not a question. But to think that God wouldn't ask us to go as far as his son did, all for his sake, all for God the Father's sake, that would be foolish as well. Yet we spend our lives trying to keep ourselves alive as long as we can, free of anything that would be a danger. We're trying to save our own life. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his own life will lose it. but Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what, is, what, profit, what does it profit a man if he will gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? We want a life that's easy, we want a life that's safe, a life that's secure. But Jesus says we have to be willing to die, to take up our cross, and march with him. Jesus later said that there's no greater love that a man has than to lay down his life for another. But how can you face death if your chief goal is to stay alive? How can you face persecution if you're never around anyone who may persecute you? How is that possible? Again, Rich Mullins had a great quote. He said, Christianity is not about building an absolutely secure little niche in the world where you can live live with your perfect little wife and and your perfect little children in your perfect little house. Where you have no gays or minority groups anywhere near you, Christianity is about learning to love like Jesus loved, and Jesus loved the poor, and Jesus loved the broken. Persecution is an ever-present reality to the believer. Again, Jesus told us in John 15, 18 through 21, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. There is a war going on. It's a constant battle. There's a war that's been waged for millennia. It's an unseen war. It's made manifest to those who are on the front lines, and many of us never see see battle. We never experience the thrill of engaging the enemy because we're busy eating safely in the mess hall. It's no wonder then that we have midlife crisis. We have men and women running around wondering where their life went. And it's stretched now beyond that. Now we have quarter life crisis. 20 and 25 year olds who question what they've done with their lives already. They finished high school and college. They started careers. Maybe they're just getting married, but something's not right. I was 19 years old, living with my grandmother. I was working at a restaurant, and I would lay uh, in bed at night until 5 in the morning Saying, if I'm lucky, I've lived a quarter of my life. If I'm lucky, I've lived a quarter of my life over and over and over again. My granddad died before he was 55. My dad died when he was 45. At that rate, I'm due. And that was what my thoughts were about. And then a few years later, I was listening to Rich Mullins. And I was remembering his music. And I was remembering his mentor, Brendan Manning. And Brendan Manning knew the absolute, passionate, unbridled love of the Father, and he lived the adventure of grace. Towards the end of his life, he said this, In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. We see a wounded soldier in the life of Stephen. Stephen was one of the early believers. He was preaching about Jesus. And the people didn't like it. The Jews didn't like it. They didn't like that he was preaching about who Jesus was. He was performing signs and miracles in Jesus' name. He was willing to engage in, a, in the spiritual battle with anyone who was not on the side of God. And he's, he ends up being brought to trial for this. He goes on this long, long uh, monologue about what's wrong with what these people are saying. He ends it with this. In Acts 7, 51 through 53, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you will always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the Righteous One, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Needless to say, the people did not take very kindly to those remarks. Them's were fighting words. But it wasn't about protecting his life. That wasn't his goal. This was about the adventure that God placed him on. It was about participating in the war and trusting Jesus and his words, knowing that he was in his father's hands. And it led to this scene that was played out at the end right after that. In Acts 7, 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. No kidding. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full in the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. When he said these things, he fell asleep. Stephen took, his, took the life God gave him, the life he knew was in service of his father, and he used it. He did something. Trust me, if the goal was to make sure that he was safe and secure, he could have made that happen. He could have told the people who were putting him on trial that they misheard or misinterpreted his words. He could have diplomatically diffused the situation and gotten out of it with his life intact. But That wasn't his battle. And he knew it wasn't an easy one. John Eldredge says, Truth be told, most of us are faking our way through life. We pick only those battles we're sure to win, only those adventures we're sure to handle, only those beauties we're sure to rescue. And Stephen didn't go that route. He knew his father. He knew it was worth fighting for. He knew it was worth taking a stand on. It was worth being wild about, being passionate about. At his death, there was a man charged with holding the coats of the people stoning Stephen. He was holding, and I want you you to imagine why he was holding these coats. He was holding these coats so they could get more velocity and accuracy on the rocks that they were throwing. You ever tried to throw a baseball with a winter coat on? It's not easy. But you take your winter coat off, you have a little more velocity, a little more accuracy on that ball. So they were taking their coats off for that reason. He was making it easier for them to break Stephen's bones, to open up gashes in his body, to crush his skull, and ultimately to kill him. That was his job man's name was Saul. We know a little bit about the life that Saul lived. He was a Hebrew man. He was given Roman citizenship and he was a Pharisee. He knew the law of Moses, again the old bread that we've been talking about recently. And his job was to persecute and kill members of this new movement called Christianity. He lived a wild life. And then something happened. He was traveling along the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him. His glory was so bright that Saul became blind. And Jesus asked Saul why he was persecuting him. Saul was blind for three days. He didn't eat or drink anything. God restored his sight through a man named Ananias. And he filled Saul with the Holy Spirit. Saul had a genuine encounter with Jesus. His life changed After that, and so did his name, he became known as Paul. After this encounter, Paul's life changed immediately and dramatically. He went out, it says he went out immediately and started preaching the gospel in the middle of the city. And the people didn't know what to think, right? Because they knew that this man was someone who was killing Christians and now he's proclaiming Christ. If anything, they probably thought this was the worst undercover job ever. Right? The other Pharisees and the Jewish leaders didn't know what to think either. He was just on their side holding coats to kill people. And now he couldn't be any further from them and what they believed. And it led Paul to living an even crazier life than he did before this encounter with Jesus. But it didn't mean it was an easier life. Second Corinthians 11 Paul says this. He he was talking to the Corinthians, explaining what he's gone through, some of the stuff he's gone through. He says, Five times I was received in the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes less one. Forty lashes is a death sentence. So five times he was given that minus one. So thirty-nine. Because that's not a death sentence. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys... In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these, from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. So there's the physical stuff he's dealing with, and there's this other pressure, this, this anxiety of, man, I want these churches to be doing well. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? That doesn't sound like fun to most of us. Given a choice, most of us would avoid a life that looked like that. In Acts, there's a story of Paul. When they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his order, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. (laughs) That's nuts. That's crazy. That's a wild life. Paul was now the one being persecuted. He was being threatened with jail, with death, but he didn't let that stop him from living the wild adventurous life that he knew God called him to. If anything, he lived with even more fervor than he did before he was saved because now he truly knew God and he had nothing to fear. How did he do that? How was he able to sing hymns to God while locked in jail, naked, naked, beaten, and bloody? He explains the this to the Philippians in a letter he wrote to them. He says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's a great verse. We've quoted that verse so many times. Athletes use it when they talk about their great performances. It looks really good on a poster or on a paperweight. I want us to read it again. This time, we're going to read it in the context of what he's saying, of his life. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that whatever situation I am in, I'm content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul knows the secret to happiness. He shares it with us. He shared it with the Philippians. He knows how to persevere in any situation, whether rich or poor, jailed or free. Whatever life presents, he can do it through Christ who gives him strength, and so can we but have you given God a chance to prove that secret true? Have you stepped out and lived in in this wild ride that we call life, that God has blessed us with as his children? Do you trust him enough to do that? I want to give you three challenges as we leave this week. Number one, rest in God. We talked about this last week at great length. Trust him for your rest. Find a place early this week, even today, where you can know him and his love for you in a clear and true way. Number two, let go of life. Remember, this life is not ours. Not as a believer, not as a follower of Christ. If we seek to save our life, we lose it. If we lose our life for the sake of Christ, we gain everything. So let go of holding on to this life. As though that was the goal. Number three, find your adventure. We're told to come before God as a child. I don't have to tell my voice to go find adventure. It's in them to do it. It's what they do. In the same way, trusting God as your father, seek out your adventure. Fight the dragon, take back the castle, save the princess, advance the kingdom. Don't be afraid. Paul puts it this way in 1st Timothy This is his charge to us. He says, "Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession." to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until appearing before our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen fight the good fight. It isn't an easy fight, but engage in the battle. Don't sit safely behind defenses like the Hebrew army did when they were faced with Goliath. Charge forward like young David did. He trusted God, and he went to battle. Be bold like Stephen, facing certain death, but unwilling to be timid like Paul, experience the change that knowing God can do for your life. You lived wild before you knew him. Now live wild for him. As Richard Wallons would say, he would say, go out and live real good. I promise you'll get beat up real bad. But in a little while, after you're dead, you'll be rotted away anyway, so it's not going to matter if you have a few scars. It will matter if you didn't live.